Welcome to another episode of The Rowing Revolution with Carlos Daenerys and Barney Williams. I hope you're having a great week and uh, excited to pull up a chair or go for a run and, and listen in for a very, very special conversation we have. Uh, for two weeks in a row, something's been uh, figured out on our end, and that is this idea of grassroots advertising. Um, our episode, K-Squared, with Soren Kosick getting in behind the scenes of the Cornell lightweight program and coach Kerber that one shot up to the top of our, uh, of our rankings. And, and then last week, uh, coach Craig and, and Jake, um, you know, boxing without brain damage uh, really turned a corner again for us here in terms of a very, very powerful recognition that people do share things they enjoy. And so we just want to thank each and every one of you that's listening on Spotify and Apple podcasts, you know, please give us a follow there. You'll know when the next episode's coming. We're, again, committed to doing this consistently. And what we're finding and, and what's really, of course, landing very well here is that people do miss sometimes in podcasts the humanity side of it because, in fairness, there's so much to cover. And as we saw the last two weeks, we're never going to be able to cover someone's resume. We're never going to be able to do justice to those accomplishments. But what we can dig into is the human connection, the exchange that takes place in our sport between the coach and the athlete. And as we heard last week, that relationship, that bond can last for years and years beyond. And that's why we do consider collegiate rowing the holy grail because you're forming those life skills, you're building those bonds that extend well beyond your time on the water and in the gym. And this is where today's conversation is really positioned uniquely, both the coach and the athlete. But in collegiate rowing, the big boat, the eight, it has a central nervous system. And so when Craig talks about the idea of boxing without brain damage, don't suggest for a second there's no brains in rowing. Today, we're going to bring you inside one of those brains, the coxswain, that individual that sits there and has to bridge the energy between the coach and the rowers. We're so excited today to bring an individual that has experiences all the way through the junior rowing ranks into again the holy grail of our sport collegiate rowing and then beyond at the highest level at the olympic games but as consistently we've said we're not going to spend our time looking at the resume we're going to go deep we're going to have a really intimate conversation today and again we just invite you to pull up a chair go for a run and if you have any feedback any questions feel free to send us a note the rowing revolution at gmail.com and thanks to those that reached out after the last episode. We're going to go even deeper today. We're going to go in to the Huskies. We're going to go in and find a little bit of that energy that Craig Americanian talked about in terms of that rivalry. But this individual, again, goes deeper than that experience. She brings a set of experiences today that we hope each and every coach and athlete and coxswain listening to really feels their chance to reflect on their experiences and take some actions towards improving the outcome of this relationship and any relationship that you're part of. As we said, this crosses over, this bridges into the teacher and the student, the manager and the employee, the parent and the child, the mentor and the mentee. And send us some more. Uh, we'd love to reference some other relationships that may be out there. Carlos, I'd love to have you introduce our guest. Welcome her to the Rowing Revolution and um, have a really, really special conversation today. So over to you, Carlos. Thank you, Barney. 
I mean, I don't know where to start uh, introducing her. I, I mean, it is you know when I get to know her is a very important moment in my life. I I just landed a year ago, a year before in America. I don't speak English much at all. So she remembers that. I'm sure. I am um, all I know that Americans know is rowing. So when I go and I um, land at at the Coney Bear Shell House, um, that for me is you know the most impacting thing that I see in America. You know that that huge boathouse with, as I mentioned before, boats everywhere, and then um, and then I I I feel like the people out there wanna wanna do something that I that I believe I know how to do too. That is just to run with races and the language and the culture doesn't matter. Then I, I meet, you know, the first time I get there in 2006, I, I meet the coach and the rowers and, and there is Kaylin Snyder. She's this, this girl, you know, like just 18 years old. Um, and the first impact I get is what is a woman doing in a men's team? You know, in, in, in where I come from, women cocks men and men and men cocks men's team. So the first thing I get impacted is, yeah, wow, you have this girl here, woman or whatever you are killing at that moment. And um, and she is surrounded by all these huge huskies, that powerful culture. And she has to put her foot on the ground, you know, and even more like, you know, Kaylin, then we, you know, we go through the years at the Husky. I see her grow through the ranks there. You know, become the varsity coxswain. You know, do amazing things for the Huskies. You know, be a, a pure Husky on the way of how she 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 leaves that that culture of of Washington and and UW and and how she wants to win and and any prize and bring the rowers and everything at the top performance she can. And then she um you know I later when she leaves Washington uh, I get to. See her again in Princeton. Uh, one trip, I go there to bring a boat to trials, and you know, she, in a very personal way, Kaylin, you introduced me to to my wife. I mean, right now I'm married to El Logan, who was a rower at the national team, and um, and Kaylin was the person because I I knew her from Washington that we met in Princeton, and she was with El, and that gave me a chance to meet her. And anyway, long story short, you know, we're married and we have two children now together. And and even longer, longer further, you know, in, in my relationship with my wife, I know that running into the 2016 Olympics is going to be her last race because she's told me, you know, she wants to drop rowing after the 2016 Olympics. She had a good run and she wants to try to go there and do her best. And she tells me, you know, I couldn't be in a better place, like going into my last race of my rowing career and half Kaylin, my best friend, taking me there. I'm going to go blank and she's going to mm -hmm. run that boat to the finish line. And, you know, what a way to finish. I don't know what we're going to achieve. I don't know the result, but Kaylin is going to do that for me. And I, you know, and, and that went really deep. I look back to 2006 and I say, you know, it started like, you know, they're on the parking lot of Washington, one day parking my car and meeting Kaylin there and talking to her and asking her, where are you from? And, you know, they didn't know much about coxswains and ending up as, you know, the person that runs my wife to her last race of her mm. rowing career. 
So, you know, I don't know who I done, Kaylin. I don't know if that was a good introduction or not, but you know, that's what you are to me. You know, you, you run very deep. It was a really good introduction. And I, yeah. I do take 100% full credit for your marriage because <laughs> I remember we went out to dinner and I, and I brought Elle with me because she, we were living together and the, the whole time you guys were talking and I was like, what the heck? I felt like the third wheel. So <laughs> I knew pretty early on. Uh, Caitlin, I think you did an amazing job there patiently letting us uh, kind of get some energy out of our system. Um, you know, we've talked about this feeling of sitting in the starting gates and what it's like, you know, you're caged up, ready to go. Um, would you mind just, you know, filling in some of the blanks there? Uh, Carlos tried to obviously give a comprehensive overview of who you are. Uh, he noted that you're obviously transitioning between girl and woman at 18. I thought that was a, a funny, but we know what you are. You're an incredible human being and somebody that has obviously given their uh, heart and soul to this sport in many regards. But could you start just back in high school and, and maybe just show us a little bit of, or, or, or share with us a little bit about the first strokes, the first exposure to this crazy sport? Oh my gosh. Well, I played soccer for a really long time you know kids start playing soccer when they're five or whatever and so I, I did that I played soccer and then um when I was 12 I broke my leg playing soccer and I did it twice in a row so the second time was kind of like okay well don't think this is such a good idea anymore and so I was just I just wanted to pick a new sport and I was starting high school and I just saw the list of sports at my high school and rowing was on there and I thought it was new and I had never really heard of it and it looked kind of cool and my dad said you know you can't do rowing because it's too hard and you'll quit <laughs> yeah so I was like okay well I'm definitely doing <laughs> rowing and I was I was like that's it I'm in it's so and I'm and I don't know if he knew that or not I don't know the extent of of reverse psychology but it worked mm. and I just started rowing in high school and I started as a rower, not as a coxswain. Um, and I loved it because everyone was brand new mm. to the sport. And I felt like, I don't know, at, when I played soccer, I was never very good. Like my best quality in soccer was that I was unafraid and I would just charge people and knock them down and then kick the ball out of bounds. <laughs> But I couldn't do like any of the good tricks or I didn't make any goals. Like I was kind of bad at it. Um, but at rowing, it was nice because we were all starting fresh. Everyone was bad. And I liked rowing because even if you weren't very technically sound, the harder you worked, the more you got out of it, especially in high school. So I appreciated that a lot. And just uh, maybe paint a bit of a picture in terms of location. Florida, is that right? You were growing up in Florida? Oh, yeah. I grew up in Florida. Um, I went to Winter Park High School, so I was on my high school team. We didn't, there weren't really any club teams, so I rode for my high school. And that's fascinating because, again, shout out to Winter Park. I don't know the area code there, but love to drop a, a reference there to the, to the crowd down in Winter Park. That's a very successful program as, as, as far as I understand. Yeah, and I didn't know that when I joined the team um but obviously we 
we did pretty well when I was there. And then, you know, they have they have a history of going up and racing at the Stotesbury Cup and going to the Scholastic Nationals and racing. And um, when I was in high school, we got to like medal at some of those races. And I mean, I don't know when when you're in high school, it seems like it's the greatest and most important thing that you'll ever do. Um, but it was awesome. So, Kaylin, when do you um, when you get on when do you get on the coxswain seat then? Um, when I was a junior, so I'd been rowing for two years, and uh, I was just kind of small. I like I was a lightweight, but we didn't really do a lot of lightweight rowing. Um, but the men's team didn't have any more coxswains. They had they had a coxswain shortage, mm. and so they just needed someone and. I said that I would do it. And at first I felt like it was a huge mistake. I hated it so much <laughs> because it's the completely opposite of rowing. Like mm -hmm. it's not true at all that you get out what you put in and like hard work as a coxswain doesn't really matter if it's not like directed in the, in the, you know, most precise and correct way. So I kind of felt like I was floundering a little bit. I didn't know how to get better. And also like being on a high school boys team is pretty brutal <laughs> well I, I i guess that that set you on the wrong on the right turn because definitely um you get the attention from i think michael callahan is the one that recruited you because he was the freshman coach and um i i don't i you know i don't know how that went because we never talk about it but you get recruited or you you get to go to UW. dub hold, hold that hold that goes because that's got, a pretty yeah, my recruiting journey was actually crazy. I didn't, I didn't really get recruited anywhere for a very long time. Um, I tried to, and I reached out to all of these men's programs and women's programs. And for the most part, I just wouldn't even hear back from any coaches. So I didn't get recruited anywhere. I was going to go to Bates College in Maine and just row D3. Um, and I ended up getting recruited to UW because the stroke seat of my boat was wow. getting recruited. Wow. And I think, honestly, I think it was more of like a, I think they just thought that if he had a friend, he'd be more likely to go to school at UW. So they said, does anyone else from your boat want to come? And he said, maybe my coxswain would want to come. And so I kind of rode on his coattails all the way to school, Kayla, <laughs> which is crazy. I, I, I just want to sort of clarify then in terms of this transition from the rower to the coxswain, you, you eloquently spelled out what I observed each and every uh, time I um, had the privilege of uh, being in an eight, um, which, which again, I think we forget as a rower that without the coxswain, there's no eight, you know, so everybody's so excited about the eight. And then there's that recognition of, there's a person needed in order for that eight to go on the water to, to exist. So you're noting a very difficult experience, which is that the harder you work physically as a rower, obviously the faster you go in many respects, we'll, we'll, we'll leave the technique aside for a second. When you make that statement about now I have to precisely focus my effort and that floundering experience, I think that's really telling in terms of, the evolution of obviously your thinking about effort. How, how would you describe that in terms of 
you know, moments, interactions with your junior coaches, maybe how did that shift from floundering to thriving? Oh my gosh. Um, I actually don't know really how it shifted. I, I think it took, it took a really long time. And I, when I first started coxing, you know, I was in the bottom boat, like I, and I spent time in the three V and the two V, um, which were the, you know, our bottom two eights. And I think that that was actually probably very, very helpful for my career because we were more all floundering, right. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Like we all, like everyone in those boats wanted to get better and wanted to have a chance at the varsity. And so um, I was in good company in terms of, you know, everyone was a little bit confused and, and trying to do better. Um, but I think that when I, I really started to I, grow. I mean, sorry, I just want to dig in on that one further because I've heard this phrase and I've used it before, shared suffering or embrace the suck, you know, and, and this, this weird part about rowing where we crave some adversity, we crave some difficult, obviously, uh, conditions in terms of weather, um, you know, for the rowers, it's the ripped up, torn hands. But I'm hearing in you something very powerful about the camaraderie, the, the sense of a shared social experience and, and kind of going through it together. That, that really jumps out. Yeah, I absolutely. And I think that that was you know, I think that's also what kind of helped me transition to being a better coxswain is because once I started to get to know my teammates and my coach better, I better understood their expectations and also like what was important to them and what they wanted and what they didn't want. And I also just felt more comfortable to, I guess, like take risks. And like one of those risks was that I was like, I need to stop talking and just steer straight because I was, you know, zigzagging down the course. And when I felt more comfortable with everyone, I could just talk to them openly and say, OK, I'm not going to say very much on this piece because my steering sucks and I need to get better at it. And they're like, yeah, it does. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> but, you know, like it took time to feel like confident enough and comfortable enough with my teammates to be able to to say that and do that. So you, so what I'm hearing is that you on your own are analyzing what's going on be, around you. You're observing at the coach, you're observing at the crew, you're analyzing what you're doing. You don't really know much. I mean, I don't know how much feedback you're getting from the coach. The, co the rowers cannot give you much feedback because they don't have much experience either, but you are kind of self teaching yourself and taking risk on thinking what is more important to do well, or, or there is, is very directed from the coach at the high school level. Yeah. I didn't get a lot of feedback from my coach at high, in high school. Um, he was like more of a quiet, soft-spoken coach in the first place. So like he wasn't giving as much feedback, but I also think that in general, coxswains, especially in high school, aren't getting a lot of feedback. I know that I was coaching at the junior level mm. and I didn't care at all about my coxswains. I was like, just be quiet because we've got so many issues with how bad all these rowers are. I just don't have time to worry about what the coxswains are doing. See that again, Caitlin, I think is so healthy in terms of just a, a, a narrative around the role of the coxswain, you know, that again, the boat can't launch 
without the coxswain. I've seen eights out there. <laughs> I don't know how many you've coxed with seven rowers in them. Uh, sometimes yep. they go better with just seven. But I haven't seen many eights launch without a coxswain. And so again, I, I, I really appreciate your colorful language around this um, understanding of the role, particularly given that it isn't necessarily understood by coaches and coxswains at the outset. Um, look, I mean, Carlos painted a picture. I would love now for you to kind of step in to that picture that he painted of the Connie Bear shell house. If you said that you were kind of getting settled in terms of the role in the 2V and the 3V at Winter Park, that you were kind of getting your bearings and understanding this role, there must have been a sort of trial by fire, a learning on the fly experience in those first few weeks or, or months at Washington. It was insane. I actually feel a little bit lucky because I didn't know anything about UW before I got there. I think that if I had known, I would have been much too intimidated. Mm. But I didn't know, you know, when I met Jesse, I had no idea that he was on the junior national team. I had no idea, like, that he was the first American kiddo to break six minutes. Like, I didn't have any idea what was going on. And I think that that was actually great for me (laughs) Um, because I didn't know enough to feel intimidated or, like, I didn't belong. Um, But I was one of two other recruited coxswains and you know I wasn't recruited until I didn't get into school until July I didn't apply until May because I was going to go somewhere else um and so I was kind of like recruited at the last minute and these other two coxswains were much better than me (laughs) um honestly they were they were a lot better than me so they they, Um, when you say they were better they 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 have more experience they have more experience. They have more confidence. They were on in faster boats. Like, you know, my high school team, when I was a senior, I was in the varsity and we were good. We, we were great, but you know, these, some of these club programs are just smoking and, you know, especially kids that were on the junior national team boats, like, yeah, they were in faster boats than me. So, so all I remember of that freshman year, I mean, I remember, you know, that's, you know, an an epic class, like Will Crothers that, you know, was sitting in front of you and, and many other, you know, Canadian guys there. I mean, we could name them all, you know, because I'm sure you remember them. But what I remember is that you, um, I remember only you as the coxswain there. So how long it took you to take the lead of these three coxswains? Oh my gosh. I guess it was like through the fall and then and then into the winter a little bit, but So um, what did you do? What what why if you don't have experience, you you don't know you don't know anything. You say the others have coached much better. Is your personality is that you connect with the coach? You know, look back now. Why why you get so because all I remember is you. So I don't think you were taking the seat at the end of the season you took it early yeah it was it was early I think um I mean what I remember is that I didn't say anything I got in the boat and I was so afraid I mean we pushed off the dock and I was afraid there's like this you know the lily pads are kind of out right in front of the dock and the lily pads make a narrow pathway for you to go through and get to the lake and every day some coxswain would hit the lily pads with their oar and get yelled at. And I was just 
so Mm. afraid. I was so scared of getting yelled at. It was like I was just, my body was so tense. I was so terrified. So I didn't say anything. And I was just trying not to hit lily pads. I was trying to line up straight. I was trying to remember the directions and do the, you know, be in the right place at the right time. And I think that everyone just thought I was really good because I wasn't saying much. Hmm. But really, I was just afraid. And then, you know, like it took a couple months for me to gain confidence and feel like, I knew what calls to make or that I could start trying to take charge. And I think by that point, I just hadn't said anything wrong because I wasn't saying anything at all. So, so Kaylin, so to me now going back and listening at what you say, what I see is, and you just correct me, you arrive there, you don't know much about Coxon because you haven't been taught much because you have a quiet coach at high school. And um, but you really quickly, because that's who you are, you figure out what Coach Callahan wants, and he doesn't want you to hit the lily pads. That's the first thing you realize. No, he second is, not. I, yeah, and I don't know, I don't remember that, but I that's what you say. The second thing is, he wants you to say the things he stays, you know, and that's why you realize the commands you need to give. So I think. What you figure out quickly is what the coach in this case wants you to do so that he can do his job. And you, because you are clever, you say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know what he wants and I'm going to do that and do, I'm, do it, I'm going to do it to perfection. And that gives you, I guess, with the growth of confidence, the seat. I mean, I don't know. Correct me. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And I think that like, because I didn't, feel like I knew what I was doing. I didn't have any skills to show off. I didn't feel comfortable like taking charge or like making my own calls or making my own decisions in the boat. Um, And so I just tried. Yeah, like you said, I just tried to do everything that my coach wanted. And I tried to do it as best as I could. And I didn't view that as like talent. But Apparently that's how it came across to everyone else. <laughs> I, I, Caitlin, I, I hear in you a ton of vulnerability, right? I, I hear this really beautiful willingness to say that in the absence of knowing what to do, I'm, I'm not going to fake it till I make it. I'm, I'm going to take a strategic approach here and, and control the controllables, which is the steering. That is something you probably felt like having that time in the 2V and the 3V and being able to say, I'm just going to focus on my steering. It sounds like you gained that competency and, felt like you could at least avoid the lily pads as a minimum deliverable. But what is so interesting here is this sense of building a relationship with the coach, but also with the rowers. Because as far as I can tell, you have to find a balance there where the rowers are looking at you and and maybe they're giving you the benefit of the doubt because you're not saying anything and they're new and they're young because that freshman experience, everyone's in the same sort of eyes wide open place. Do you have a memory of when that change though and maybe you're still looking to the coach and trying to understand his process but when it came to the rowers you you, you found a connection you, you you found a moment here of like I get you guys and 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 when do you have that sort of sense of again as Carlos said taking the seat and and really owning that seat and giving those athletes confidence that you're a difference maker yeah oh my gosh I guess I don't remember like the exact moment but I definitely recall 
practices where like so will crothers who was stroking the boat would say things or like make calls and i would just parrot them like i just repeated whatever he said and then nine times out of ten the boat got faster or got more set up or you know mike callahan would say good job and i was like wow okay great good job um but i didn't really know what i was saying and after a while i was like okay i need to figure out what's going on here because will obviously knows what's going on and it's great that i you know can just repeat whatever he says but that's him coxing that's not me coxing and so i remember that i would cover up my microphone and i told him like listen when you say something i'm gonna take a few strokes to try to feel what the boat is doing right now and then I'm going to make your call and I'm so that I can try and hopefully see what has happened in the boat that's different because I need to figure out what's going on here and I was like you know it's going to seem like I'm ignoring you because maybe it takes like 10 strokes for me to make the call I'm not ignoring you I'm gonna I'm gonna make it but I just need to feel for myself what's happening before and after Um, and it started to get to the point where I could start to make those calls that he would make before he told me to make them. Mm. So you, you starting feeling the boat. Yeah. But like intentionally, and it was helpful that I had someone in front of me that had a very, very good understanding of what was going on. Um, Well, I I I was able to learn. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, you know, Credit to Will Crothers. He wants to win races, so he says, "I have a coxswain that doesn't is not prepared, so I'm gonna help the coxswain." And then credit to you to repeat what he's saying because he's making effects on the boat. And at the end, all he wants is that the boat goes faster. But trying to understand why, so that you can make the calls on your own, or you can even make better calls eventually. Yeah. And it was, you know, and I, and I got the room also from him and from the rest of my teammates to learn instead of just every practice, you know, just like repeating what they said and trying to go as fast as possible. Like they gave me the room to learn for myself what was going on so that I could be better. And then in turn, we could all be better. Now, obviously at this stage, we're starting to piece together your process and and it's pretty powerful caitlin as i said a combination of that young 10 11 year old that was prepared to bulldoze over people on the soccer pitch um you know the courage as you said the the instinct uh to to push hard and to take risks blended with a really cool uh again vulnerability to to look for help to to take uh the time to to really understand um, the environment you were in, but time is ticking here. And where we got to in a very cool conversation last week, um, again, regarding the Cal Washington rivalry was, you know, there's a urgency factor. So can you kind of paint that picture of, yeah, you're learning and everyone's, you know, quote unquote, being patient, but how are you offsetting that with the reality of there's a very formidable opponent on the horizon, whether it's with San Diego or with the duel, that 
it isn't going to necessarily land very well that you say, guys, I'm, I'm just going to take it easy today and just focus on steering when you've got a, an opponent out there that's prepared to, you know, fight tooth and nail to, to win the race. Yeah. Um, well, I think luckily that my, in my nature is I'm a little bit, I'm very, I would say that I'm actually very aggressive as a coxswain. Um, I like yelling and I like yelling loudly and yelling a lot. So um, it was definitely easy, especially when we were doing pieces or when something was important. Like I got so hyped up Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the culture of the team, you know, with Mike Callahan and with all of the guys too, is the same is that we all got really hyped up really easily. And we bought into the idea that, you know, when you go out to race, you're going to war. And I actually remember Carlos, I think it was, oh my gosh, I don't remember what race it was, but it was my freshman year. And he said, uh, he said, you guys are going out there to fight a war. And he's, I mean, he went on for maybe 10 minutes and he, he said something like, you know, you're going to get to 600 and you're going to take out your bow and arrow and you're going to look them in the eye and shoot them. You still remember. <laughs> yeah, and we were all like, what does that mean? But we're like, okay, we'll do it. We're, we're going to take out our bow and arrow and shoot them. <laughs> I, so I, it was everyone, you know, everyone got hyped. It was great. I am, um, yeah, I, I I think you 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 lost the cow duel that year. Yeah, we lost a lot of races that year. So, so what I'm amazed and um and and going back quickly is you you know because it it kept me thinking you know about like you know if there is high school coxswains that are gonna listen at at this recording or college coaches that are recruiting, you know you get to UW, you have no experience, you just have a very special personality. I think you are, um, as Barney describes well with the soccer and you describe that you're aggressive. You have a very special personality that is ingraining you. Uh, you are very smart because you, in a very clever way, figure out how to progress through the ranks and and catch the right information. But the, the, the thing that is impressive to me, and that's what I want to try to uh, give, give credit to Coach Callahan, and you're going to tell me if that's true or not, because I don't know, is if you arrive at UW, and you don't know much about coxswain. You just have the right personality and the right energy. And you're smart to figure out things. And um, in one year, you go from being the bottom-ranked coxswain to in the last race to win the national championship, not having won any race during the season. Um, what Coach Callahan does to get you to that point, or you do it on your own? Oh my gosh. No, I think that was probably all Callahan, honestly. Um, so he's, he's a, a, a very, um, he's very uh, clever on how to coach coxswains. He's very organized. He has a very good process for coxswains. How he can transform. I, I know Will Crowders does, but what is his, what is the thing that he does that really gets you to that point? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think for, for me, it was more just about, um, the, the fact that we, 
he made us all come together as a group of 10 people. Mm. So like, it, it wasn't like he's the coach and I'm the coxswain and they're the rowers. It was like, this boat has 10 people in it and we're all equal and we're all the same and we all have to be our best in order to win. And it made us have an individual sense of ownership. Like, you know, I think everyone in rowing, it's so easy to point at your, you know, the person in front of you or when you're the coxswain, you can see the blades, this and that and say, this is what that person's doing wrong. You need to get your blade in. You need to, you know, set the boat up, you know, as a coxswain, you need to make these better calls. But the culture that Callahan really helped foster was more that we all have to take a sense of individual ownership in order for any of us to succeed. So you really have to look inward and focus on yourself and be the best that you can. Can you, um, Caitlin, can you just um, go a little deeper on that? Because I think this is where the sum of the parts, these great expressions about rowing, why is rowing on every financial uh, sort of advertising out there is this, this sense of like, it's a brand, right? Rowing has this very uh, visible sense of working together towards a shared goal, um, not so much focused on 401ks or something like that. But the point is, there's moments here in the season, especially given how tricky it was, not having kind of stood on top of the podium, not having had that success on the sort of finish line. Where are what are these conversations like? Do you remember any kind of moments post duel? post pack 12s or pack 10s at that point that you can really point to in terms of an interaction between the 10 of you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I just remember how much confidence Callahan tried to instill in us, even though we had just lost, uh, like the confidence was so that the, it used to be pack 10s when I was there and at the pack 10s, we were, you know, within a foot of winning, you know, and at the Caldwell, we were a length behind. Mm. So the confidence was like, listen, you're getting so much faster at a much faster pace than they are. And I, and he's like, you know, he's saying things like, I could tell that they were scared. I could tell their coach was scared. And I don't remember anything specific that he said, but I guess I just remember that instead of getting off the water and being disappointed, that we were on the wrong side of a, you know, close. He was, he was excited. He was like, you're going to win the IRA. And he was confident and excited. And I think also like throughout the season earlier than that, when we had come up short of a goal, his attitude was never, you know, I told you guys to do this and you didn't do it. His attitude was like, I, I'm failing you. And I think that that for us, like it was like, we wanted to say, no, you're not, no, you're not like, you're doing great. And we're going to work even harder because we don't want, it's like a little bit cheesy, I guess, but like we, we didn't, it was, it was upsetting. Mm. It was upsetting for our coach to have that reaction. And I've had coaches yell at me, you're not listening to me. And my response to that is like, F off. <laughs> you're not listening. And that the hostility doesn't make anyone faster, but hmm. But, His but ownership made us take ownership. But but Kaylin, you know, but besides that, you know, to to win a national championships, to make the right calls, to get the boat to the line, to to be 
efficient in all the practices, to don't hit things, to to um, motivate the crew, to to communicate everything the coach wants you to do the right way, to, to just produce top performance. How did you get in eight, nine months from zero to 100? Like, Coach Callahan might have a process. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I guess... I actually am not sure that I have information about the process that was going on in terms of like my coaches because I was so focused on myself (laughs) and what I was doing. And I think for me, like learning how to get better and learning how to make the right calls, a lot of it was about just doing and saying the same thing over and over again and practicing making the same calls over and over again. His question sort of revealed it's almost an Everest. If you try and look at the whole scope of the responsibilities of the coxswain, it would be the same as the coach. So you've got to break it down into bite-sized bits. And what I'm hearing you say is strategically you had a, clarity of focus which was do the basics really well now we've again graduated from yeah. the lily pads we've moved into maybe something a little bit more advanced but when you talk about that repetition i mean that's beautiful too because it's this idea of whatever we spend the most time doing will be the best at and i hear you now saying maybe there was a maturity early on to say i can't take on as carlos said the entire everest of my job, of my responsibility. You're also a student, let's be clear here. You have a life outside of rowing. So what were those basics? Do you have a, I mean, I got fascinated. What were the calls? Carlos skipped right over winning the national championships all the way to the IRA in 2007, I guess, but, or 2008, but, but freshman final regatta, you've come up a foot short at the pac 10s. Are there calls that, kind of jump out of you as you said you you zeroed in on the basics Is, can that race plan come to the surface still for you i honestly don't remember at all <laughs> which is we'll, yeah well we'll track down Crothers, i'm sure or somebody from that boat and they'll uh they'll give us a verbatim because i can remember and that's the crazy part is you had so many other deliverables um but i guess maybe the race itself then can you at least paint us that picture of a crew that is kind of scraping and clawing and at the heels of the of the bears and then at the IRA, how does that race play out? The what I do remember is like in 400 meters, knowing that we were going to win. And I remember like the whole time thinking like, please don't catch a crab, like just keep going. (laughs) Cause it felt like we got into our rhythm and we were all confident and we're on the same page and we knew how to execute our plan. And I mean, you guys know, like when you, come off your high strokes and you lengthen into your rhythm like you can tell if it's your rhythm Mm. or it's not and I could tell that it was our rhythm and we all knew that if we got into our rhythm we would win Mm. so you you did you did win and that was a pretty amazing season you know to because that's the more important race the last one and you get to do it and I think it has even a better flavor when you've been short all season but building to that and, you know, end up, I think it's the first win at the RA for Coach Callahan and uh, and for sure for you. 
so so Kaylin, um I I Can I Carlos, I think this is a very logical transition point. Um, you know, we talked a lot, Caitlin, before this about the intentionality of this conversation, and that was you taking your experiences and using them to essentially structure and create healthy relationships with your coaches. And as your resume proves, you've done an amazing job of that. What Carlos just hinted at here is a transition though. You've moved now out of the freshman environment into the varsity environment. That involved a change of coach. Can you just walk us through what that transition was like from your memory of moving from one coach to another? Yeah, it it was very hard, um, especially because when I was moving up to the varsity team, I also had a bunch of new teammates. So that was, it was like a double transition because you're getting used to like a new coach, but also like a new group of teammates, new expectations from both of those parties. Um, and I think that for me, a lot of it, if not all of it was just about trying to observe as much as I could about Bob and how he did things and how he interacted with people and what his expectations were. Um, I tried to take in as much as I could about him before I ever even tried to interact with him in a meaningful way. Just uh, again, for clarity for our listeners, uh, not all of them being rowing uh, fanatics like Carlos and I. <laughs> um, you know, Michael Callahan, we've heard his name bantered around, obviously, in terms of an athlete from the U.S. team that transitioned into coaching quite recently in terms of your tenure with him. I think he'd only been uh, you know, a couple of years coaching with the program. Bob Ernst, uh, who you referenced there, had been involved for many, many years. I mean, this is one of the legendary figures in the sport. That is, Caitlin, really powerful in terms of, again, maybe in that moment, not feeling like you had a process, but a very intentional decision on your part to say nothing, it sounds like. Um, I, you know, what did you observe? What, what do you remember observing about this coach? Um, well, he did not like Coxons very much, which is a generalization, but he would say a lot that like coxswains are basically useless <laughs> and um he also referred to coxswains as like the middleman so he viewed coxswains as separate from the boat which is different i think mm. than how callahan viewed coxswains um so i like pretty quickly kind of learned that Bob wanted like more communication with his coxswains I think than Callahan did Callahan would kind of communicate with everyone as a group mm. and Bob had the expectation that he would tell the rowers some things and the coxswains other things um, and the coxswains were like more running the workout than with Callahan we would go out and he would pick us up and he would kind of run the workout and we would, you know, make sure that everything went smoothly. But with Bob, the coxswains had a lot more autonomy. He would give us the plan, but then we would go out kind of by ourselves and execute it. Um, and that was interesting. And, you know, Bob also 
is very old school and like he would run these workouts it would be like the tuesday workout was the tuesday workout and we would do the <laughs> same tuesday workout every tuesday and it would be you know a certain number of weeks and then once it hit april 1st it was a different tuesday workout and um that was interesting i think because very quickly like i got to learn it's the same workout every Tuesday. So I got to figure out what are the expectations? How does it go? What does he want from it? And I almost think that was nice because, um, again, with the repetition, like I was just doing the same thing over and over again. I, I got to get really good at it. So, so Kaylin, um, when, when you, when you're on the freshman year, um, you learn both field, you learn, to understand what the boat needs, you learn about, you know, what the calls to make so that you can help the boat improve, which I think, you know, besides going straight is one of the big things about the coxswain is that he's inside the boat, coaching the boat, helping the coach to coach the boat and um, and going further than the coach can. And overall, when the coach is not there or, or um, you're racing, you know, you are the only one who can help with that. So when when you transition to the varsity, I bet all that is helping you a lot within this automatization, correct? Like you are, because you need to you need to win the seat again. You need to. I bet you are fighting with um, junior, senior coxswains, or and you make the boat that year. How? What? Why you think you get the seat in a, in your sophomore year? Well, I have to be honest again. The only other coxswain was a walk-on who'd only been coxing for two years so huh? i have to <laughs> oh. i have to be honest like that's why i got the boat but um i think also that yeah i think that i think that i had figured out how to communicate with bob and communicate with my teammates and i think i figured out how to make everyone feel like they were right which is, sounds a little manipulative but i think that's what i did <laughs> i i i caitlin i think carlos again is so intentional in his line of questioning which is that you have to have confidence i mean that's the spirit of uh leadership it, it, but it can't be false it, it can't be and I, I appreciate you being transparent and saying you didn't have to therefore cut your teeth in training to earn that seat but in many ways, that can lend itself to imposter syndrome. That can lend itself to a place of, oh, my God, I haven't earned it. I, am I even the best here? It's, it's almost by default. So that's a different challenge that you face. Obviously, then you face this new coaching paradigm, this, this new energy. And, and one thing that's important here in terms of environmental conditions is that previously the freshman programs were very separate in the sense that there was an entire um, – kind of uh, racing season for freshmen. Now, most people won't understand that because most programs have integrated the freshmen in. It's just varsity rowing. So that sounds like another transition you noted there in terms of the environmental situation. I think what I'm hearing you say is you have to be willing to observe the differences. You have to note the differences in the way the environments work. And this is why these conversations are so powerful because in any environment, any situation you find yourself, if you're willing to have a growth mindset, you're willing to say, well, what don't I know? How does this environment work? You're going to have a much better chance of contributing to it. 
So I'm just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit in terms of Carlos's point is, okay, maybe you didn't have to fight for the seed and how Bob does selection for coxswains. But what about the, as they said, sort of energy of the varsity program, the, the guys, you're, you're, you're now with athletes that are two, three years older than you. Uh, how did you find that transition? I mean, it was so, I was terrified. That's, I mean, I, yeah, that was maybe the most terrifying, even more than I was in the beginning of my freshman year. And I was pretty terrified then too. But, um, you know, I remember some of these guys, like, like Rob had taken a year off. Okay. Again, for the rowing fans out oh, there, yeah. Rob Gibson. Sorry. Are we Rob Gibson. Canadian? Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Another Canadian had, had taken a, a year off to train for the Olympic team. And, um, you know, there was another guy from Serbia who had competed for his Olympic team. And I felt like these were athletes that were so much better than me and so much better than I would ever be. And that I was capable of being that, like, I didn't feel comfortable telling them what to do. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to do. They do like who, like, I can't even begin to try and step in and like take charge. And I think that a lot of coxswains feel like in order to be a good coxswain, you have to have like a good command of the boat. You have to be a leader by way of telling other people what to do. Um, but I felt like there was no way that I could do that. A, because I didn't feel comfortable doing it and B, because I just didn't know <laughs> So to tell them what to do. So you, you think because of that, they help you more? Because, I mean, I keep hearing, you know, that you don't, you didn't know what to do, that, you know, they were more capable than you, that, um, you, you know, they were Olympians. But, you know, I mean, Kaylin, you know, all I see is that facts. And what I see, and I know you're a very humble person and you are trying to put a picture, as Barney says, you know, a realistic picture of, of, of the things. But what I see, and I'm, you know, I'm a good friend and know well Coach Callahan is, first, if Coach Callahan put you on the seat on the freshman year, it's because he knows you're going to help him to achieve his goal, that is to put that boat at the finish line to win gold. Second is... If you um, win a national championship in your sophomore year, it's because you're doing a lot of things right. And third is you decide on your own when you leave Washington, you want to be an Olympian. And then I bet when you get selected or you are on the run to be an Olympian, you decide on your own, not because, you know, the people on the boat want that you want to get across the line first, which you did. So, you know, I understand you're humble. You don't know you're learning. But I don't. I cannot believe within you, even if you understand that these people know more than you, you don't have a very strong call within you. Say, I'm gonna get that done. I'm gonna do it. I want that seat, even if you don't know how you're gonna get it or how you're gonna do it, and you're gonna figure it out. I think there is some very strong confidence there, and um, I, I cannot believe that it's just all happening just by by you know by by because just the dots get out the right place i don't know just what 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 how do you see that i mean honestly i do see a lot of it as being in the right place at the right time like i don't necessarily think that anyone in the right place at the right time could be successful mm. but like i don't think that 
if I had been at another program under other circumstances that I would have found the same success. Um, but in terms of like gaining confidence, I do think that because I was so uncomfortable and because my response to being uncomfortable was to take a step back and observe, like that's how I gained confidence. And I think that for a lot of coxswains, their response to being uncomfortable is to try and like step up to the plate and show like, oh, I can be a good leader. You know, everyone should believe in me. But when you're in that position, you're not actually taking in the information around you and learning. And so for me, and especially in the fall, you know, in I think almost every program in the fall, like it's more about training. It's more about doing longer rows. And so you're not necessarily doing any selection. Um, and so you kind of have a chance to be more quiet and more observant. And I think that in that way, I actually then was able to grow my confidence and like truly feel like I understood what was going on around me so that I could actually be a confident leader. So you, you will ask questions to the coaches or you were quiet, just observing, or you will take action. Oh my gosh. Well, I actually did not ask a lot of questions and I feel like, I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit, it's honestly, it's Mike Callahan's fault. One of he, they had, we had like three rules and he, he said the rules were like, don't make Washington rowing look bad. Don't touch the launches and don't ask any questions. And at first I was like, this is, so dumb like and we were all like what do you mean don't ask any questions and after a while and especially after being in the sport for years and years and years I think that that was probably I mean I guess it was a rule it wasn't advice but it was like the best advice because instead of asking questions like with an open hand like open-ended questions like how do I get better or what do I do like I was kind of forced to answer my own questions by being more observant and like paying closer attention and like doing more critical thinking and problem solving on my own and I got to the point in my career where like when I would ask a question I would ask a question give the answer that I thought was the right answer and then say mm. is this the right answer what do you think and that led to a conversation with my coaches and my teammates that was so much more productive than just asking a question like, how can I get better? Or what should I do to be faster? Carlos, you are getting what you were looking for there just <laughs> in a very different uh, way than, than anticipated. You know, the suggestion here, Caitlin, of course, would be you had to have goals. You had to be someone that was driven uh, to achieve, that, that you prided yourself on improvement and that you set your sights high. I mean, that's a given. But I love the way you just frame that around this idea of, you know, a humility, uh, be in the right place at the right time. You make your own luck sometimes for sure. Um, you know, interestingly, it would, maybe in your coxing journey, you couldn't crash into people. Well, maybe you could, but uh, that might not have turned out so well for you like in soccer. Of course, the beauty of this progression, this journey, and, and the line of thinking that we've hopefully taken you down so far is experience is what you get right after you need it. And here we are with an individual that has gone from Winter Park 
to Seattle, Washington, the Connie Bear Shell House, the Vatican of rowing for Catholics. It's a bit of a merged idea, but I think Carlos has said enough times people understand what we're talking about. And then as we skip over these, again, resume items that we're not here to dwell on, we're, we're looking at the human interaction. You take step, you decide and you set your sights on the highest level of our sport. We use Holy Grail because we see it as this synergistic place in terms of collegiate rowing, the student athlete, the life skills and the relationships that you're forging. But you set your sights on something beyond that in our sport. Can you just walk us through a little bit about how that manifested? How did it sort of emerge now that this young person whose dad said, you'll never do it, it's too tough, has now decided that they want to take on, quote unquote, the toughest challenge in our sport? Yeah, um, I had never thought at all about rowing after college. I didn't even think that it was a possibility or I had never crossed my mind or imagined it. Um, and I was invited to try out for the U23 team after my freshman year in college and I made the bow and we won and everyone there was talking all about you know the Olympics and the reason you go to U23 team is because you want to go to the Olympics and everyone is talking about you know moving to the training center after college and so then that's what I decided to do. So that, that's the first time you coach women you cox women. Yeah yes. And so then just as we talk about these relationships and we didn't get your name of the coach at Winter Park. Do you, what was the name of the coach at Winter Park? Uh, Dan Bertosa. So Dan Bertessa sets you on your way uh, with, with a very laid back, uh, quiet style, throws you uh, over to Callahan. Sorry for the expression here of being tossed around, but I mean, again, it's sort of what it probably feels like sometimes. You're into this individual's environment that, um, you know, for those that don't know Mike Callahan, it's incredibly disciplined, incredibly precise. I think a background from the military runs through uh, certainly his uh, philosophy then into, you know, Bob Ernst's environment, um, you know, someone that is built upon the history of Washington and, and built truly, you know, uh, the, the top program in the country at that time. And now you're heading into a new environment with a new coach. Um, what was that first introduction to Tom Tahar like? Uh, it was really difficult. And I think the hardest thing for me is that in, when I was in college, like, coxswains were, were always getting yelled at. And the nice thing about always getting yelled at is that you know when you're doing something wrong because <laughs> someone's yelling at you. But Tom, like, would not, he just doesn't yell ever. And for me, I thought that was much more stressful than being yelled at because I, I will go out there and I wouldn't, necessarily know if I had made a mistake unless I could tell myself that I had made a mistake. Um, and so it was much more a place where I had to, to teach myself what was going on because the, the feedback was just almost non-existent. Mm. So, so you will get then feedback from the girls 
yeah, feedback from the girls or just no feedback a lot of the times. None of any, of no, none, just no, no feedback. But then how, how did you know if, if you were doing well or not? I mean, yeah, exactly. at some point... <laughs> But at some point, it, will, it, it was less feedback, but it needs to be some feedback. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, for, for the rowers, their feedback was, you know, like their race results and their, you know, they would pick pair partners. And if they, someone, you know, if they were getting picked by a lot of people or, or if they were getting better ERG scores, like their feedback was there in a lot of quantifiable ways. And for me a lot of times I wouldn't get feedback unless I asked for it or, you know, until the boat was selected and then the feedback was you made it or you didn't make it. Uh, and so what I started to do, and this was something that I started doing in college and I took with me and kind of expanded on it is that I would go in and meet with Tom myself and I would tell him, I would always have like two or three goals that I was working on. And I would tell him what my goals were and I would tell him the specific ways that I was trying to achieve those goals. And so like an example would be for a very long time, I was working on trying to be more demanding. I really just wanted to tell everyone what a great job they were doing all the time. Mm. <laughs> and it was really hard for me to say like, no, actually you're not doing great and you have to work a lot harder. So that was like, I mean, for years, that was something that I was working on and I would go in and say to him, you know, one way that I'm trying to be more demanding right now is sticking to a certain split. What do you think of that? Is that a good approach? Yes or no. Mm. And instead of just saying, what can I do to make the boat? How can I be better? So like telling him my goals and telling him how I was trying to achieve them would open the door to this conversation that was like a, he was, he would then, participate in my goals in an active way and normally he would say something like you know that's a great idea i'll i'll do a better job of giving you splits to hold so to make it a little bit easier for you to know exactly what number you should be looking for and i was like great i mean like incredible he knows my goal he thinks i'm doing it the right way and he's going to help me achieve it and you know, sometimes it would be, he would say, actually, you know, don't worry about that. That's not a goal that you need to be focused on. I'd rather you do this. And it definitely helped build a relationship in a way that I don't think I would have been able to otherwise, just because he doesn't talk very much. <laughs> so, so you figure out on your own, um, when you move from coach to coach, and you had very successful coaches, you know, in, in, you know, and at, at UW, at the national team, and with very different approaches and very different personalities. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, everyone is the way they are, like you are the way you are. You figure out um, how to find a way to become better and, and or actually to do, to do your job better. And instead of seeing, you know, for example, if, if the coach at the national team, Terhar, is not communicative or he's not giving you feedback, you know, you find a way around it 
um, because that's the way he coaches and that's the way he is. And instead of seeing it as a problem, which you might see at the beginning, you you say, well, you know, this is what it is. He's successful being that way. He's not going to change how I can become better in that situation. And you figure it out. And I, I think that me is, a, is an amazing skill you had. And, and it keeps me questioning, you know, l listening at the whole um, hour we've been talking, you know, because I'm putting myself, you know, let's say, you know, I'm a coach and I have to recruit coxswains and, or I'm a national team coach and I had to bring coxswains, you know, I'm, I'm listening at you. And the thing I see is that if you put the right coxswain within the right place, you know, with the right rowers that can teach them feel and the right coaches that can teach them the mastering of the sport. And um, at the end, the limiting factor of if this coxswain is going to be or not good is how they are in their approach and personality and clever and, um, and how they react to adversity and how they figure out the situation and step up by finding solutions and adaptation, you know, and I think you don't give credit to yourself about that, but I think, you know, that's exactly what made you succeed. You say, yeah, I was at UW and I had coach Callahan, but I bet we bring coach Callahan, we bring Bob Ernst, we bring coach Terhar here and they all will agree, you know, she wasn't the seat because she was brilliant at that, that and that, and it wasn't just going straight. Yeah, I think, I think the biggest part of it is figuring out the communication and communicating in a way that that lets the coach know that you have been listening and that you support them um, and that your goals are aligned and then you know just opening the door to get more out of them so, so and and you know quickly like you always had success with the teammates. Like you were always loved by the teammate chosen. Um, you know, you had really good chemistry with your teams. Um, you're an intense person. They know you're going to win races with you. That I bet the coach can see that too, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the same. It's the same type of communication also, like, especially in an eight, you know, you can have eight people that want to do something different. <laughs> And I think the best coxswains will find a way to make everyone feel like they are on the winning side of whatever compromise it is that you guys choose. So it's, it's like the glue that, you know, Barney, you were talking about, you know, the coxswain is the glue between the crew or the rowers and the coach. And, uh, and you know, and this is a dynamic um behavior that you are constantly adapting and trying to understand, you know, you are like a, the brain there trying to understand what is the coach thinking right now? What is the coach, you know, really wants from this crew? What are the rowers feeling? What is the boat needs now? You know, you are like a machine, a computer there trying to understand what the boat is doing, what the rowers are going through, what the boat needs, what the coach is thinking, what the coach, and, and that's not an easy task because it's not like a, you know, a manual that tells you, okay, you are in minute number three and, you know, we should, um, uh, you know, five seat is not squaring uh, correctly. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of things happening right there and you need to process all that and say the right thing or focus on the right thing. Yeah, and even, even that, I feel like, is about 
the communication. So like when I, if there's someone in the boat that's just like not rowing well, like, you know, you can make a call a couple of times, like get your blade in. But if you're saying over and over again to that one person, get your blade in, get your blade in, like make this technical change, then they're going to get frustrated and everyone else in the boat is going to feel like the things that aren't going well is all this one person's fault. And so like, even, even in terms of that, for me, it's always been about communicating where you'll find a way to say like, okay, starboards need to get their blades in the water. And then if that person that you're talking to makes a good change, then you say their name and you say, great job. You know, like it's like finding ways to communicate the issues that are, I don't want to say gentle, but like, yeah, I guess make, make everyone feel heard and also not single anyone out. So be, be smart enough to, to know exactly what you need to say at every moment that is going to get the right effect and not just say that because you know, is the right thing to say. You you need to have meaning because, you know, there is going to be reactions to what you say. And I think you were very clever or you're very smart at that. And I will say like now, you know, if, if I have, if I'm a college coach and I have to recruit a coxswain, I, the first thing I would be the top thing in my list, if I'm a recruiter for a coxswain, is that, is that coxswain a good communicator or somehow I will analyze, okay, is that coxswain, is that person, is that athlete that is going to sit on the coxswain seat clever, bright, a good listener, is good at communication? And I won't even worry about other coxswain issues because they can learn them. But if he's lacking of those things, I don't think he can be a, a great coxswain. Yeah, I agree with you. I um, A question that I really like to ask is what do you what's your favorite thing about coxing and there's a lot that you can tell from that answer like a lot of coxings will say my favorite thing about coxing is being in charge and that's where i'm like okay you got a lot to work on because that's not mm. what this is about at all it is in a sense but it's also like that can't be your mindset because that's not a learning mindset that's not an observational mindset like, that's not a rising tide lifts all boats mindset. Um, what you have to love about coxing is being part of something bigger than yourself and basically being a shepherd to everyone else's success. Wow, Caitlin. Yeah. Wow. I, you can kind of sit there in these conversations and think, where is this organic kind of last 500 moment and talk about taking us there uh, that that was a beautiful description the, the rising tide lifts all boats um you know in a day and an age where we heard coach craig last week talk about human beings coming to, together to do positive things it's just so uplifting it's so you know sort of powerful he described that boat crossing the line with 1939 on it and the, i don't know if you had a chance to listen to the episode yeah. but i mean you could hear his voice breaking and then you've just done that. You, you've just transcended our sport with your beautiful description of, of the, the mindset that's needed for the coxswain, let alone for the athletes, for the coach. And it's that collaborative spirit. It's that sense of leaning in, meeting people where they're at. And if this conversation hasn't illuminated 
for everybody listening, the idea that, again, our sport gives us some life experiences and some relationships that are going to live beyond. And that's what makes it truly so, I think, unique. Um, I'd be shocked. I, I'd, I'd be shocked. We, we don't have, again, a script to follow here other than an intentionality that people would listen and reflect. Um, and, and just in some way, shape or form, you've brought us there. You, you've brought us to a place of reflection. You know, you've similarly to other conversations we've had, given each and every person listening the opportunity to say, how am I interacting in my various relationships? And I just would love if you wouldn't mind maybe painting a picture for us of post rowing. And, and, and you know, where is Caitlin now um, in terms of her journey as a, a person trying to, again, grow and learn and have purpose and meaning and, you know, all of these challenges that we're going to face Till, as Carlos says, uh, you know, we're sitting with the iPad on our lap and we've got to look back and somehow process this crazy journey. Um, you know, is there a connection here to your experiences as a coxswain, uh, as an athlete to, quote unquote, the real world? Uh, yeah, 100 um, percent. Right now and for the rest of the school year, I am um, a substitute teacher at an elementary school in Brooklyn. Oh. Um, yeah, it is, uh, it is so much more like rowing than I ever thought a job would be, <laughs> um, just because of the collaborative nature, um, you know, you get, I, it's a title one school. So that means in New York that it's like the highest need population, um, and, the interpersonal communication skills that I got while rowing have really been like the foundation of being successful at this job um, and like being able to observe. And I went, you know, I started teaching and I had never taught before and I was very bad at it in terms of like classroom management. Like I was very bad and, um, you know, being able to, observe and ask questions without asking really questions, but asking questions that you already know the answers to. Um, you know, I was able to like learn from so many of the teachers that I work with and I'm in a position now where I feel so much more comfortable. I know the kids, I know the, the teachers and I feel like I'm contributing to their success in the same way that I felt like I was contributing to my teammates success as a coxswain. So that's great. And then, <laughs> um, it's going to be hard to, again, follow up on this um, in, in terms of wrapping it up, Caitlin, because I think that probably is a subject that you'd like to spend much more time talking about. Uh, you know, we talked about relationships and here you are. We talked about the difference of the coach and the athlete and then the coxswain sitting in the middle, as you said, Bob Ernst described it sometimes <laughs> having to. But now you're in a classroom. That's a parent child kind of vibe that that's probably transpiring there and of course you're delicately tiptoeing around some very challenging circumstances I'm sure that some of the students are facing outside of the classroom um, but we do of course respect your time and we also very much appreciate that I think there's more to come in terms of a another conversation with you some point down the road but you know Carlos Caitlin where, where would you guys like to leave us here in terms of our, our final 10 strokes today I, I 
you know, I'm I'm just happy with all the things we touched. And um, I, I think it gives me personally a very clear picture of what Kaylan went through, her process, um, her humble answers, her um her her strengths, how she um made it to the top by um doing the things that she thought were important really well. And I think that could be a very um interesting information there, Kaylan, for it, it definitely was for me because I'm passionate and I'm fascinating about always learning about more about the sport. And I'm always fascinated about the coxswain seat because I don't know much about it. Because coming from Europe is not about the eight, um, or at least, you know, in, in Spain or France or Italy is more about small boats. So I've been always learning about the eight and in America is a big thing. And in college is, you know, it's the boat and, um, and, you know, learning and listening at, at your process. You know, I think a lot of coaches um, listening at you, that you are the coxswain who's been, you know, doing it for, you know, 15, 20 years and he's been in big races with big coaches and for the athletes, you know, that they have a coxswain sitting there and they might not value that coxswain as much as they should or even um, realizing how Will Crothers help you by teaching you feel and by um, telling you what to say when you didn't understand what to say in these certain things is very powerful for other rowers to take that um, that role. So I think you describe a very nice picture of um, of all that. And I'm, you know, very thankful. And I think that's going to help a lot of people. Yeah, I feel really excited to have had the opportunity to talk about like leadership in that way. And I think a lot of times toxins especially struggle with what kind of leadership to employ and it doesn't always seem like like that kind of observational and patient leadership is the right pathway but um it was for me and I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to talk about it well Caitlin you you, you did more than talk about it you, you really again shared a very colorful and a, and a very powerful set of experiences, which is certainly the goal of these conversations. Um, I had the chance to speak with Seb Pierce. Seb was uh, my coxswain at Oxford in 2006 this morning prior to our conversation. And what he hinted at, and of course in the boat race, um, it's a coxswain's race, as we know, he said, it is overlooked. It is fundamentally misunderstood sometimes in terms of the importance, the significance of the role of the coxswain. The challenge we're going to face in these moments for the community at large is how many resources are there available? And so it doesn't work to just say to the coach, to just say to the environment, you need to do a better job. There needs to be some strategic approach. And I think what you've done is you've provided that opportunity for a young coxswain particularly to add value to their environment and then harness the limited resources that are there. You know, a couple of takeaways for me that were very powerful was the idea of, uh, you know, maybe not the Michael Callahan don't ask questions, <laughs> um, but the idea that if you're going to ask a question, really make sure you've given it some thought. You've almost answered it in your own mind, not to sort of make it redundant um, or rhetorical, but to truly make it meaningful in the sense of, the purpose of the question. 
which is again to understand and to improve an environment, not just challenge it, not just point out what's missing or what's lacking, but rather enhance or, or you know, elevate the quality of the environment. And I think, um, I hope today you feel that you've had that chance uh, in a small way to do that. We've enjoyed very much your, your time and energy and, um, you know, we just wish you the very best in this next uh, step along the journey for you. Uh, hope to hear more about it at some point. Uh, Carlos says, I think appropriately thanked you for introducing him to his wife. So that Lucy covered that one off. <laughs> yeah. that covered before. And um, to our community, those that are out there listening, again, we just invite you to send us any feedback you have, therowingrevolution at gmail.com. Uh, keep uh, an ear out and an eye out for the next episode on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us a follow and just know that we're committed to continuing to give you energy that hopefully you can use in your life and, and reflect upon. Um, we'll let the, the music take us out and just uh, Caitlin, very best wishes to you. Thanks so much for joining us on the, the Roaring Revolution and uh, till the next time. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thank you, Caitlin.